Welcome to Downtown World. Don't waste no time with negativity. The conversations you never get to hear with me, Kay Blair. Weekly where we gain inspiration from our special guests. Thank you for tuning in and sharing, subscribing to us each and every week. This week's episode is sponsored by Shop Downtown, your one-stop shop for everything downtown world. You can visit and support us at www.downtownworld.com. That's www.dwntwnwrld.com. Now, let's get into this week's bowl of fruit. Eat fruit and mind your business. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and welcome to another week's episode of Downtown Podcast, Don't Waste No Time with Negativity. Now, today, as I said before, 2021, we're focusing on winning, we're focusing on value, and we're focusing on improving ourselves from within then to without. And I am truly beyond honored today to have with us Cecil Foster. He is known as a novelist, essayist, journalist, scholar, father, a gentleman. Like I could go on and on. And I, I, I sneakingly did let some people know that we were speaking today because I know them as avid readers and, you know, everyone has their, their preferences, but a main one that just kept coming to the forefront was no man in the house and how much value it is bring to so many. So I definitely want to highlight that and welcome Cecil Foster with us today. Well, thank you. Uh, you have certainly taken me down memory lane by going back to no man in the house. Yeah. <laughs> That is what we do here at downtown. So (laughs) that is what we do. But thank you so much for agreeing to be here today. And, you know, just as a way to kind of pick your brain to see where your mood is at today, a staple question that we do ask here at downtown, don't waste no time with negativity, is what is a situation, it doesn't have to be recent, where it was negative, you you definitely could have reacted or dealt with the situation in a different type of way, but somehow, some way, you remained cool, calm, collected, whatever it was, but somehow you, you probably even surprised yourself to say, wow, I'm surprised I didn't react that way. What is the story you can share? <laughs> well, I, I can't think of any one specific question or story because what you are asking is so much part of daily life and um, where there's so many times and especially when you are a black person living in north america or living in this part of the world you constantly have to be keeping yourself in check and when you do that you can either go all the route of being negative and skeptical and give up or you can do what have become a survival strategy for so many of us over the years of which turning the so-called lemons into lemonade. And that is always um, seeking to find how we can make good out of bad situations. And and I'll give an example because um, you're introducing me as a writer and I 
remember once, and, and you mentioned Norman in the house, um, I was at an event in Ottawa to launch that book in Ottawa, Norman in the House. And one of my colleagues, and at that time I was working at the Financial Post newspaper, and one of my colleagues who had come to the reception said to me, um, you don't know how fortunate you are. And I said, why? He said, there you are, you grow up in the, the Caribbean and those experiences you have, which I thought were really tough experiences. And he said, but look, they have translated into a book for you and into a writing career for you. Whereas someone like me, I just live in boring Ottawa. <laughs> and that's why him was an example, but, um, but you're hitting on a very good point because one of my mantra has always been that as a writer, nothing either bad or good is ever lost on a writer. Mm. Uh, writers always find a way of recycling mm. events mm. and making them into something that hopefully is worthwhile. And your body of work definitely is worthwhile and it's connected with, I would say millions of people, especially of the diaspora of myself being first generation Caribbean and a first of many things for my family. It's, it, it speaks volumes, especially when you're able to speak numerous languages against across like age groups, meaning you're able to speak to, as I say, the wiser generation, you're able to speak to people like myself who are under 30, you're able to speak to mothers, fathers, you speak to so many. So recycling, it. I, I get a little bit nerdy. <laughs> so when you say recycling to me, I'm like, wow, that's so like profound and true because it truly is recycling because not it's not always the purest things that we use. And once you recycle it, it can be meant for some really great use, so you're saying yeah, like I, I, And I want to recommend that to your viewers and to your listeners, because um, as we go through life, or my experience has been as we go through life, we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. We might have an idea of where we would like to go and the things we would like to do, but we know what is in the past. And, uh, and we shall always learn lessons from the past. And not only the lessons that we ourselves have lived, but from what others have done before us. So that uh, when you mention about your generation and my generation, um, those two generations have always been part of my thinking as a writer. Indeed, when I wrote my very first book, Again, No Man in the House, I wrote it for my kids and their of your generation. And I was writing as someone who had come out of the Caribbean, was trying to make a living in uh, North America, in Toronto, was missing all the previous generations that we had left behind and all the cultural things that we held so dearly. And trying to raise kids and uh, now, the, the example I'll give is that I often refer to myself as a grandmother boy, mm. meaning that 
I was of that generation, now referred to as the Windrush generation, when our parents went off to live in London. And uh, a whole generation of us were raised by our grandparents. And it is not fun to be raised by your grandparents because grandparents have lived their lives and many of them are out of step. And it is tough to ask a grandparent to come and to raise a second generation of kids. So I am proudly one of those who was raised by grandparents and in my case, my two grandparents, um, grandmothers. And, uh, and I was growing up in the, in the Caribbean and then I came to Canada and I am raising kids. And I often think of how much they have lost because they do not have grandparents. They didn't have grandparents that they could go and spend time with. They didn't have many aunts and uncles. They didn't have the extended family. And I set out to write stories for them and for their generation to remind them that they have roots and to remind them that they come from a long line of very important people. And that as they try to make their, their way in Canada and in the United States and elsewhere, that they should not feel disconnected, that they should always feel they could jump on a plane and go south and uh, reconnect with their roots. And today it is a lot easier. Now they don't even have to leave. Um, they can do it with their cell phones and whatnot because we now live in a very transnational world where we live between nations and between states. So, but what does that tell us about the future? It doesn't really tell us much. And uh, because the future will always be about hopes and it will always be about dreams. Mm. And we can only take those things out of the past from generation to generation and hand them to the next generation in the hope that someday everything that we hope for would be achieved. Mm. And uh, being interviewed by someone like you and uh, people of this younger generation, I think that we have achieved quite a bit in moving that needle forward. I remember when I started out in journalism in the Toronto, that very often I went into newsrooms, CBC, The Globe, the Toronto Star, um, CTVS, where very often in that newsroom, I was the only minority and very often the only black person. And now I look and I see that the field has so much opened to allow minority faces and people of color to grab the opportunities. And, uh, and I smile and I think of the people like the Debbie Laws and the Charles Roaches and all those who were in the forefront of the struggle in the 1980s and 90s, 200s, to make these things happen. So in a sense, I look back and I smile and I hope that the younger generation would grab these opportunities, would run with them, and would hand over to the next generation, their own kids and grandkids, a Canada that is so much better, a Canada that can really live up to its true potential as a multicultural space. I have, I have a lot of confidence in future generations to come. I have this conversation like 
regularly with my brother, which he's like one of my best friends. And I speak on what we speak on a lot, which I'll share with you, is that I feel like, like my parents, they laid the foundation. They weren't completely in control of, you know, how the story went because you guys came to this continent and had to start from the bottom, I'll say, fair? And now with my generation, we are to have the properties, we are to, in a sense, create the table so that our offspring, the next generation, which would be, you could say the second generation of immigration, I'll use my family as an example, that they now have a different, uh, a different starting point than what the previous two had had, had because they're starting with property and they're starting with a table that's already set for them. So they don't have to worry about the things that maybe my mother had to worry about creating a comfortable life here or the things that I am now worrying about creating a comfortable life for what I'm trying to build, which is a legacy. But um, a bit of a, a bit of a saying that um, I'm not sure if you're hip to it, but I would love to ask you the saying that they say, every nigger is a star. I'm not sure if you heard the saying before, but- I've it, heard various variations of that, but they but what not are your, that way, yeah. What are your, sorry if I, if I came across a bit blunt. <laughs> no, that's fine. I am a professor, so I have students that can speak quite bluntly. <laughs> so that's okay. why we nothing on my shoulder. <laughs> yes, everything everything comes with um, a pure heart. So please yes. bear with me. But if you could shed light onto maybe what that saying means to you, because I feel in 2021, as we said, we're having these conversations and bridging these gaps and pushing the conversation forward from where you have started. What does that phrase like mean to you if it means anything at all? Well, it, it does have a significant meaning for, um, for me, and uh, maybe the language is that of today, but I will share with you that I don't think that is any different from in the 1850s or so, when you had people like Franklin Delaney and others standing up in white setting and gently simply saying, I am not a Negro, I'm a man. Mm. Or Sojourner Truth, or someone saying, ain't I a woman? And that has always been part of the question that we as black people in this part of the world have always had to answer because we have always had to ask ourselves that question too. Mm. And uh, so every nigger is a star means that by the very fact that you put the word nigger and star together, that the word snar is negating the very old baggage that came with the word nigger. Because when that word was derived and first used, it wasn't anticipated that a nigger was anything. A nigger was a subhuman being. We couldn't write poetry. We couldn't do philosophy. We couldn't be in the academy. And we started by talking about when I went into newsrooms, when there were a paucity of people 
um, of color in them when niggers weren't supposed to do those things. And what we have done, and uh, you tell the lovely story of your parents coming up from the, the Caribbean and uh, laying the table for you. What we have done is to stand up and to say, I am my own star. Mm. I am in my own movie. Mm. I am my own director and I am my own script producer. Mm. And I am going to make my life the kind of movie in which when my daughter or my son and their grandkids, they look at it, they're going to say, well, that is one badass nigger there that has been there over the years. Because what we have always had to do was to appropriate language or reappropriate it and hollow out all of the nonsense and uh, dehumanizing meaning that was placed in that music and turn around and use it to go back to the lemons and the lemonade into making something that is useful. And indeed, as you know, and I don't have to tell you that, that is the very story behind hip hop. That's the story behind Calypso music. That's the story behind blues and uh, reggae and minto and all those music. Because what it does, it allows us to be real in the sense of knowing where we are starting, coming to reality of the odds that we are against, but we are keeping our eyes on those plague lights yeah. And we are the ones that are going to say, cut and start and replay and do those things. And we are going to be our own stars. So that's how I take it. And I'm very, I, I hope that I'm not wrong. That's, that's what the younger generation is saying. But I think if that is what they're saying, they have simply um, taken the old narrative and has put new life into it and new meaning into it based on their time and and this situation. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful, beautiful. I, I agree with what you said, and I definitely feel like we've embraced it and use it as a term of upliftment and encouragement to each other and also a reminder to let each other know that like none of us is greater than each other, like within our community, that we must continue to like lift each other up, embrace each other, so. But, but let, let me also say here that um, even if people of my age and generation and uh, now the older folks, yeah. I'll always tell you and others this, but we are very proud of what this generation is doing. Indeed, this generation, people like yourself and Christine and others are indeed um, fulfilling what we had hoped for. When those of us who left the Caribbean and came up to places like New York and uh, Toronto and Montreal and Winnipeg and Vancouver and all those places, yeah. with neither kith nor kin, very often some of us came with maybe a partner, or maybe some of us came and found partners um, in these strange countries. Yeah. 
But we always had a dream and it was the dream that pulled us out. And the dream was we know that we are going to have to sacrifice. When I left Barbados, I knew that I was coming to a place that was called a white man's country. Mm. So I knew that it was going to be tough. Mm. But there was something that was in me that made me feel, and sometimes I look back and reflect on it and smile and said, well, geez, I must have been really brazen to have thought that I could have got off the, an airplane at then what was called um, Pearson Airport and, uh, and, and, and walk into this country and think that I can make a difference, think that I can make a change and to think that I can make money. With? Sorry? Is that the mentality that you came with when you came? Well, that was the, well definitely. I, I came with the mentality that I was going to be the star, that I was going to make things change. And, uh, and it took a lot of holding on to because in the very first years, I certainly got knocked down. Very often, um, I had to run up against this thing that I'm sure that your parents and and, and, and grandparents and others would talk about when they say you don't have Canadian culture. Mm. And uh, that was something that they held over our heads. Um, in fact, not culture, it was Canadian experience, experience. That we didn't have Canadian experience. So we would often say, well, how the heck can we get experience unless you have, give us a job and, uh, mm. and we'll go to interviews and everyone would say, oh, you'll make a lovely whatever, whatever. We know that you were accountant back home. We know you were a journalist. We know you were a broadcaster. We know you were whatever, but you don't have Canadian experience. And that was something that we often had to go back home. And looking back at it, we often, after a while, we learned how to joke about that, uh, how to joke about Canadian experience or lack of it. But in doing that, we were fortifying one another. And we would go back and we would write the letters and uh, we would start all over again. But no, I, I definitely, when I arrived in Toronto, I was a journalist in the, the Caribbean, in Barbados and in Jamaica, and uh, where I went to university. And, uh, and when I came to Toronto and people asked me what I wanted to do, I said, I want to be a journalist. And, uh, and I remember how those that I were, was joining in Toronto, we would be watching TV and watching hockey and things like that. And they would say, well, look on this television and tell me if you see a black person. And uh, obvious question would have been no. And they would say, well, that is the reality of what you're gonna be up against. And look at the number of others who had come up before and wanted to be a journalist and never made it. I was said, well, unfortunately, I'm in the position that journalism was the only thing that I knew. Mm. And uh, I don't have anything else that I can offer. And I persevered. And then eventually, I got some chances. Wow. Wow. If I can, if I can go a little bit um, back with you, back further, what led you to like being in Barbados, growing up as a beautiful island, like I've been there once and I just want to be there all the time now. <laughs> and just growing up in that environment, to me, it looked beautiful, but to you, you could have possibly 
which through your your body of work it speaks at times gone through different experiences and how did that lead you to wanting to recycle your experiences into black and white and into visuals and, and different forms of art was there something that happened in like your childhood or something that triggered your love of writing but where did that stem from for you and answering that, I want to go back to your uh, initial question about being a star, a, a nigga as a star. And one of the things that I think that is interesting about me and people like your parents and that generation, is that we have been a peculiar type of a nigga. That is West Indians who grew up at a very special moment in being black. We grew up in the Caribbean at a time when we were beginning to believe that Black people can do anything they want to do. We were talking about independence in Jamaica and Trinidad in 1962. We were watching what was happening in the, the United States with the civil rights and knowing that many of the leaders in the civil rights movement were West Indians. And we had that sense of purpose, that things were changing and that we wanted to be among the change. And that we were gonna be part of this change, whether we are going to be in the islands or we are gonna be any place in the world. And of course, we often used to joke, and it's still probably true that you can go anywhere in the world and you can find a West Indian. Yeah. And, uh, and not only there, but a West Indian that is keeping a lot of noise and walking. I'm thinking of, um, I was recently watching this um, show, the Jamaican show, where Butu Banton was saying that he is a Jamaican, you only have to see the way how he walk and the way how he walk. He's a Jamaican. And, and that is true of just about every West Indian. St. Lucian, Vincentian, Barbadian. There was a swagger and, uh, and we were a special type of black people where we had started to come to terms with racism mm. and where we were living in societies that were really multiracial. And I argue, for example, if I might segue, that the very first multicultural societies that really fun were functionally multicultural were in the West Indies. Yeah. And that it was from West Indians that Pierre Trudeau and others got the idea of multiculturalism. Yeah. And people often forget that someone like Martin Luther King, when he was asked, well, you always talk about having a dream of where peoples of the world can live together and where black people can live in human dignity. Does such a place ever really exist? And he would say, yeah. It's in Jamaica. My wife and I, we just got back from Jamaica and, uh, and you'll be surprised to see on the street, there are people who are Chinese, there are people who are white, there are whatever. It can happen. So that was during the period. So those of us coming out of the Caribbean at that time were a peculiar type of black person. We believed that we were fully human and that indeed to some extent, that those islands were too small to contain us. 
and we wanted to go and do things. And then, of course, we came and we met, met the reality of racism where we had to confront it in the new countries. That's that's definitely still the reality, though. Guarantee, even up to now, I have family members where that's the mentality of how you can grow and blow up and the island is kind of containing you. But um, with COVID and everything that is happening in relation to that, I definitely feel like that is no longer the truth. Wherever you are able to access internet, especially with things like Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, things of that nature going on, you can do it from anywhere. And yes, yeah, so that's why earlier as well too, I said now that we were sort of kind of the original transnationalists because what you have explained so well is really what transnationalism is about, where you're constantly on the move, but you're home wherever you want to be and wherever you choose to make a home. And you don't have to lose um, ties. And one of the things, if I can go back to talk about that generation of which I was that came up to North America, that was one of the things that I think that we were very careful to pass on to your generation and to subsequent generations. That we didn't want you to lose that sting that pushed us out of the islands, that self-confidence, that self-assurance. And that's why when we went in and we broke down doors and we kicked down doors, we wanted our kids to come in and fill those positions, but to fill those and fill those positions the way that we would have, if we had had Opportunity. The opportunity before the obstacles. So we were clearing the obstacles. And that's why for me, it is a pleasure now to sit and watch younger generation West Indians move into positions and to claim them as owning them. And not to say please and thank you anymore, but to demand them by right. Yeah. So to me, that is what I was struggling for. Mm -hmm. I was talking to someone who reminded me and said, look, I was reading your book, uh, A Place Called Heaven, The Meaning of Being Black in Canada, which was published in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. And he said, um, I think they should republish that because it is still so relevant for what you were talking about. Because I was talking about a black prime minister for Canada. I was talking about black premiers. I was talking about black attorney generals. And at that time, we could not even get a black person elected. Exactly. <laughs> you know? exactly. but, we, but we had those dreams. And suddenly, I was in the forefront of pushing those dreams and saying, look, let's go out and let's conquer. And let's take this land because this is the land that God gave to us. Right. And that's the way I read about it. Yes. Well, that energy. I'm telling you, just for the people I know around me, you know your daughter, you know, and I have like times like 40 of those around me where it's just like the energy that us as younger people coming in, we are, we're coming back for everything and we're demanding it. Yeah, and, 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 and I take pleasure, for example, uh, I'm sure you're going to ask me about this. 
But as you know, um, there's going to be this series um, on CBC and BTV on the sleeping car porters, which is going to be uh, instrumental. Amazing. And, uh, a, a novel, a novel <laughs> yeah. production because it's going to be a Black production. It's going to be by Black people, uh, Black writers, and uh, people who are going to be out there telling a Black story from a Black perspective. And that is the kind of thing that I am very proud of. And I'm very proud of these young people who have taken this idea and they're gonna run with it and they're gonna be very successful with it. And people like me can sit and hold our chin and say, yeah, that is what we imagined. That is what we were fighting for. Yeah. Run with it, take it and run with it. And you know, what I am doing is not different than from what those porters did in 1954, when a generation of them, a group of them, majority of them West Indians, got on a train at Union Station and went to Ottawa and said to the government of the day, change this country. This country cannot be a white man's country bring in people from India, bring in people from Pakistan, bring in people from China, bring in people from the Caribbean. And that was the beginning of the change to Canada. They called for a radical restructuring of this country. And that restructuring is still going on and Canada isn't anywhere near where it ought to be. But it was those people in 1954 at the height of despair. And they said, no, we can be the stars. We can change this country. And they went to Ottawa and they said to the prime minister, who wouldn't even meet with them? But they said to the government of the day, a change must come. And that's what I like about this program on the, the porter because it was the porters who did that. There were the people who had jobs in the black community, but there's that combination of the long held notion of the yearning for freedom and to be able to express yourself through your individuality, who you want to be, to be proud in your skin, to be proud in the hair that you, how you carry your hair, to be proud in your food, whether you like rotis or jerk chicken or doubles or whatever. And that all those things that you can be proud of and you can still be proud Canadian. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you so much for introducing, because yes, you knew I was going to want to speak on They Call Me George. I do know my time is coming close and I and I respect, I respect your time. So I want to ask you if I'm able to possibly squeeze out another 15 minutes or if I you shall, want to add. Well, these are, these are COVID times, so I don't have anywhere to go right now. Well, thank you. I do respect your time. So I truly do appreciate that. You know, when it comes to they call me George, and I I didn't even get the chance to really ask what your state of, of mind is when um, writing these books, but you kind of did give an insight in terms of like recycling. But when it comes to they call me George, and obviously it's part of the Canadian experience that we know, and I feel like the white Canada tries to ignore, but we know of it. 
And what inspired you to express the story, to put it into a body of work that you had no idea that today, 2020, 2021, it would be turned into a series with CBC and BT. But like, what was your state of mind? When created? Well, well and, and this, I would hope that if the younger folks that are listening, and I know that they're primarily younger folks that listen to you, yeah. um, it's a reminder that they shouldn't lose hope and that many overnight successes are really bred out of long, hard work. And that book itself is an example of that because I really started working on some version of that way back in the 18, back in the 1980s or so, when I was a business reporter at the Globe and Mail, you know, working for the report on business. And I was a transportation reporter and I would report on the railroads and I would report on Via Rail and take trips into the US and on the airlines industries and things like that. And, uh, and there was always that mythology that Canada was built by the railroads. You know, um, that little ribbon of steel that bound provinces and regions and people together. But there was very little ever said about the people who ran those trains, and in particularly those who were really housekeepers on the trains. There were domestic workers on the train, which were the sleeping car porters. And, uh, and you can find them in the history books. So I was always fascinated about them because there were the people that when, for example, after the Second World War, the wives of Canadian um, soldiers, the, the war brides were coming across, they're the ones that welcomed those brides to Halifax and elsewhere and took them across the country and introduced them. And they're the wonderful stories that those war brides would tell about these black men. These black men who going up to Tanda Bay used to be Santa Claus, um, <laughs> Father Christmas coming on the train, and, and I can only tell you of the number of stories that I have received from people since that book came out of the way that these Black men had touched their lives at a very personal level. Nothing was ever written about them. Yeah. So I have always been writing that, about their stories and some of it in fiction. And then um, when the 150th anniversary of Canada came along, my publisher and I decided, um, why don't we tell a different story about Canada? And I said, well, the story that I'm telling about Canada might not be the one that fits into the narrative that you know of Canada. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, yeah, 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 go ahead and write it. And he was very supportive. And that is the result of George. And, um, and it is a story in which I am presenting as a counter-narrative a narrative to this idea of how Canada became multicultural, which is something that is the old story that it came out of really a fight between the English and the French and uh, the French went off into Quebec and the English went elsewhere and that was a problem. That's only a minuscule part of the problem. Yeah. And, uh, and part of a bigger, to me, a bigger part of the story was how the railways and these porters knitted the country together 
but then most importantly, working with other communities like the Jewish communities and others, how they fought for civil rights, how they fought for fair housing, how they fought for the right to a job, how they fought for a livable wage, how they fought for all of those things. And most of all, how they said to the then elites of Canada at that time, your entire immigration policy is wrong. Let's start by bringing in some domestic workers from the Caribbean. And then, you know, once the domestic workers came in from Jamaica and Barbados, and that's where the whole barn door broke down. And to this day, we even get now domestic workers who subsequently came from the Philippines and came from au pairs from Germany and elsewhere. But it was instrumental and it was started through those domestic workers that came out of Jamaica and Barbados and some kids and places like that. Exactly. Which led to the multiculturalism that is Canada today. Very often we don't hear those stories and we have to tell those stories of those poor domestic workers who came and suffered greatly, but they linked up and they came here because of the domestic workers. And in fact, the domestic workers were only the opposite version of the porters because the porters were in fact domestics working on the trains. And the domestic workers became domestics working in the houses. Because that was also another way of, I guess, building that trust because they felt comfortable with us handling and it extended, extended until it turned into nannying and things of that nature. So it is a huge untold story. And thank you for seeing that gap and bringing another Black Canadian story to light that is important for us to know. Um, personally, I'm very into researching on Black and what it means and Canadians and who is here first and everything that you embody. So thank you. When I say thank you, I genuinely mean thank you for just creating that conversation. And now it will be a part of another story that's able to be interpreted and extended. So I'm excited to see what comes of that. You know, if when I think about like Viola, because that is another Canadian story that I wasn't completely aware of until the conversation started happening about the $10 bill and everything of that nature. And I'm just like, we need to, we need to tell more of these stories and we need people like Mr. Foster and we need people that are, that are going to demand that our stories are being told so that the next time someone is looking on that television and it's happening now, as you said, that they do see more of us and it is normalized, you know. Exactly, and that we see the true story of it all because the Viola story is very much part of the same story of the sleeping car porters. Because when she was growing up in Glasgow, in Nova Scotia and in Cape Breton, that's where many of the sleeping car porters were coming from. And in fact, if you were coming out of Jamaica or Barbados or Sinkis or wherever, chances are that you would be working on the, the railway and you'll be living in those neighborhoods. And uh, so it is the same story. 
And it is a wonderful example that you're giving of how we have the male and the female components of the same story. And uh, because very often there were the auxiliary groups that were formed because at that time only men could become porters. And the men did feminized work, which is became domestics. Yeah. And, um, but when they were gone for long periods, they were, were the very strong black females who kept the families going, who kept the communities going, who formed the women's auxiliaries to make sure that um, the struggle for human dignity and human rights and things like that continued. Yes. But it's a story that is very often overlooked. And that's why we need people like even yourself and others to get out there and yes. to tell that story in all genres. Yes, 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 most definitely. Um, another staple question that we do have here at downtown, don't waste no time with negativity is you have the four elements. I'm doing this off the top of my head, so I will try to get it right today. But the four elements being air, water, earth, and fire. Which element do you feel like represents you or you resonate with the most and why? There is no right or wrong answer. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate that, I smile because uh, First, let me say that I might be fooling myself, but I resonate with fire. <laughs> okay. But, but, but the question that you ask is a very fundamental question that goes to the very heart of the very idea that there is something called Western philosophy. Yes. Western philosophy began with the question of what are the foundations to life? And you can go back and you'll see that people were talking about those four things that you talk about, that those are the essences. And that is a combination of those various essences yes. that make life. And yet for the longest of time, they tell us that black people didn't know philosophy, right? But yes, we have people like Pythagoras and all those people who prove it differently. Exactly. But for me, I, have the image of myself as someone who is always seething with a fire that is burning inside. Mm. And, uh, and it does rely on the, the air to be oxygen to make it blur, yes. burst forth at different times. It does need water at time to tamper it down and to maybe even cause the changes to happen. And, uh, and it does need earth because I need the earth to remain grounded and to be reminded of who I am. And, uh, but for me, I like fire because fire leads to rebirth. That anything that happened can be transformed. And just as importantly, it might be necessary to transform them radically. Yes. And fire always has that revolutionary and that radical component of it. So I like fire. I, I, I'm surprised, but I'm not surprised at the same time that that is what you chose. I will share with you, um, I like to share other answers that have been given to me in relation to your response. And one of my favorite ones 
now including yours because I'm definitely going to be tweeting away everything that you just said today. Don't worry, I will quote you. <laughs> but, um, I spoke with this lady, Ty Woods, and she is a coding slash art program in the US. And she had chosen fire as her element that she resonated with the most. And we led to the, the conversation led to basically the making of, of gold. Yes. And when you YouTube or you look at the process of making gold, it literally is submerged in fire. Yes. And when that gold comes out of that submerging of like heat and fire, that den, like you look at that gold, it looks so pure. It looks unscathed. It looks just perfect in, in, in every way. So I love to say we are pure gold. Yes. And there's also to the notion of the finest steel has to go through um, the fire. But it might also to speak to a little of my religious side where I, in choosing fire, might also be drawing inspirational from Daniel being thrown into the fiery furnace and coming out so much stronger. Yes. Yes, yes. Talk about it because I use that um, I use that saying a lot. And even today, um, when your daughter and I were speaking, and we we're just you know speaking about things going on, and I said to her, you know, don't worry about it because when you're digging for the diamonds, when you're close to the diamond, that's when your back really starts to hurt. <laughs> And I said that to say, you know, we both are very close to where I feel we are leading to be. So let's not be distracted and just remember that when we are close to the diamond, that's when you're back. You know, I'm Jamaican, so I really start for hot as we would say. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I'm an adopted Jamaican too, because I live in a Jamaican <laughs> home. Uh, and it is the female in my version of things that always determine the home. Yes. So I live in a Jamaican home. And, uh, but I understand where you're coming from. And, but I think it is true of the human condition. And uh, the human condition as we as Black people had to endure. Because to go back to where we really started this conversation, remember that when people like myself and others were born, while we would call ourselves Jamaicans and Barbadians and Catitians and St. Lucians and other things, and even Americans, we were simply Negroes. Yes. Negroes did not have countries. Yes. So when you read the book, um, you'll see it talk about Negroes from the British West Indies. There was no differentiation between us. We were simply Negroes. And a Negro was a person who did not have a country. And that was why coming out of that, you even have some of the West Indians in New York and elsewhere, uh, such as Richard Moore, who led the discussion for something like Afro-American to say that you do own a country, you do own a place. And then subsequently with the coming of independence in the Caribbean, um, you can start saying, well, yeah, man, I'm a yard man, I'm Jamaican, or I'm Trinidadian. I'm Barbadian, I'm Guyanese. But until then, we're all Negroes, and Negroes didn't have countries. Yeah. Well, 
Um, I hope I'm not passing my place, but I truly do believe that we still are not free, you know, but when I just look at the things and the documentation and how the land and the Caribbean is being ran and as you were speaking on how it is said that we did not belong to one, I feel like because we were there already. But you know, I don't I don't force my personal like beliefs on people. I let them seek their own truth. But I, I truly do believe that now that you're even explaining this to me, with we were all just classified as Negro, we are more one than we all think, you know. So it's definitely a lot of um fruit that you are given today. So that is a, another saying that we do have here at downtown, which is eat fruit and mind your business. <laughs> when I do say that, I mean it in the literal sense and in the spiritual sense as well. Now, fruit spiritually for me is definitely conversations like these where I feel so full and so filled with so much fruit which I do not take um, for granted. If there was some fruit that you could, or a fruit that you could possibly share among all the fruit that you shared today, but some fruit that you could share with us to say, whether it's a book or a saying, something that has just helped to bring you fruit through, what is that fruit? I like to, well, my favorite fruit really is a banana. So and okay. maybe I don't know if that anything has to do with the fact that bananas tend to be propagated through shoots, that there isn't a seed or anything like that. And one can argue that every banana tree came from the original banana tree, that you just take a, a plant of it. So, and I'm just thinking on the fly as, as we speak. Yes, yes. But what I like to do is to often remember myself, to temper myself that there's a time and a place for everything. Yeah. And, uh, and that we have to be mindful of seasons and of times and uh, when to speak up and uh, when to watch and when to observe. Yeah. And, uh, but very often we have to be mindful of the time when it is necessary for us to speak up. Yeah. And uh, I'm not sure that I always live up to that motto, but I have always tried to, where possible, if I see something that I was not happy with or I'm at ease about, that I would speak up against it. And, and, and that has been my approach, and that has been my approach in the, the books I've written, where many of them has been written to fill gaps because I feel that someone isn't getting it right or someone isn't telling the story or someone that doesn't understand the kind of perspective that someone like me would have. And then I offer it out there in the hope that others would take it. So like you, I am not forcing it on anyone. Um, but at the same time, I've come to recognize that freedom is always going to be elusive and it should be elusive. 
because we should never reach the point where we are totally contented with the way things are. Yes. And that's why I would argue that God always give us young kids and give us young generations because they can come with new eyes mm -hmm. and they can go and remake the world. And in fact, very often, yeah. the world ought to be remade um, yeah. because it got so screwed up in the past and some things that we didn't get quite right. And, and, and I think that that's one of the bigger problems that your generation is finding with Canada, that there's still those who want to hold on to some of the institutions and things from the past and to say, well, we have always done it this way, or why change it? Well, because you've done it in the past doesn't legitimize doing it. Yeah. I mean, um, the police have been policing for the way they've been doing, but that doesn't mean they've been doing it right. It just means that they've been doing it for 200 years wrong. <laughs> so, 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 so the, you need that younger generation. And to me, that captures freedom. Freedom is always the right to look back on the past and to pass judgment on the past, to make a decision in the moment what you're going to do, and then try to implement it in terms of going forward. And you should be free to do those things. So freedom then has a high element of the moral evaluation about what has gone in the past in terms of what you want for the future, but what has to be done now. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, to just top it off, one of my favorite rappers and musicians of this time, Drake, as he says, it's not about who did it first, it's about who did it right. So <laughs> it's, it's everything, Mr. Foster said everything he's given you, I like to say bars. So usually in a song, there's about six or in a verse, there's 16 bars. Today, yes. he gave us about like 120 something bars. Like I don't, I, I can't even quote all the bars for everyone. So as I like to let everyone know and the conversation is just super heavy is you gotta pause, rewind, replay and take notes. I always take my notes when having like conversations because selfishly i am being inspired and motivated as well so take your notes people and let's use this to add value to 2021 now there is just two more questions that i will ask today before we end out and um this is a bit more fun to lighten up the mood a bit um if i don't ask you these questions the audience will say hey you know, so we take we take no prisoners. Everyone gets asked these questions, but if it is too much, feel more than free to just pass it on by. But <laughs> here we go. So, would you like me to start? Go, go ahead. Yeah. Or or no, warm, I'm all, warm it I'm up. All for, I'm all for it. Go ahead. Okay, so I'll start with this one first. Given the option or this is a would you rather question. So would you rather is you have two options, you have you must choose one or as I said, you can pass. So the first would you rather is you have received $500 million once or you have cured world hunger and you are known for it. Like everyone in the world knows that this is what you've done. Which would you choose? I would choose to cure world hunger, even if I'm not known. 
because to me it would be the achievement. And uh, and again, um, I want to take you back into the history that we were talking about. Many of the stalwarts who fought fought for the notion that something fundamental would change even if it is not associated with them. Yes. So until my book came along, many of those um, porters who fought for the Canada that we are making today, we named unnamed, nobody knew them, but they achieved something. So I would go for the notion of um, curing the world hunger. And uh, for, because for me, rather than get the $500,000, I would then have to wonder how I can use that $500,000 to cure world hunger. And that might be more of a headache than anything else. <laughs> yeah. 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 And uh, I mean, I'm not wanting to give the impression that I um, want to be flippant about money because we need to have money to sustain ourselves. But for me, the real meaning of life is those things that are relational, the things of how we are good fellow travelers in life. Yeah. Um, people that are of your age, people of the previous generation, people of those to come. How can you make a difference then? Whether you would get a statue to put up for you or not. But have you, in exiting the world, can people really say, hmm, the world has been better because she or he was among us. Yeah. I just had to let that like sizzle and marinate <laughs> before <laughs> I came in a bit because yes, yes. And, you know, I agree. I would choose to um, be like cure world hunger and be known for it. And a lot of the guests, like I would say 97% of the guests do choose that as well because what everyone kind of similarly says um, your answer has been the most profound so far, is just that going, going around in the world and maneuvering through a world where people know you are the reason why they are no longer stressed about food and things of that nature, you're set for life. Why am I paying for anything? Why am I worried? I'm going everywhere and anywhere for free because that is the main reason why we are out is for food and shelter. And um, one of my closest friends, what I love that, you know, he says all the time is the most important things in life is where you sleep, like sleeping well and eating good. Yeah, yeah. Well, the young folks know where, where they're at and they have their heads on the right way. But you said there was gonna be a second question. Yes, yes, I have it here. So the second question is, um, would you rather chop off both of your thumbs, okay, both of your thumbs or a baby's foot? Now the baby, you do not know the baby. And so would you rather both of your thumbs or a baby's foot? I am going to cheat on that one. And I'm going to say I would take the baby's foot off if it was cancerous. Mm. Okay, I will accept that answer. I will. Okay, accept that answer. <laughs> but no, um, certainly, without that proviso, that would be very difficult for me. And of course, as 
as Christy, my daughter, has, has undoubtedly um, indicated to you, the love of my life and of my wife's life are our grandkids. Children, yeah. So, <laughs> the very thought of yeah. harming kids and our precious grandkids or anyone like that. Yeah. Uh, it was just saying a shiver on me, so I would probably end up losing the thumbs, but let's hope that life doesn't ever bring us to have to make those choices. No. No. And I like to ask these questions just because I'm a deep thinker. So even me asking you that doesn't always mean that in the literal sense. But thank you for entertaining that question because I was very nervous to ask you. But it is a question that I do ask everyone. <laughs> but you will, I hope you also learn something in terms of the answer too. Yes. Yeah. This is an old saying that if you don't want to answer the question, answer the question, you change the question. Yes. Yes. So you answer another question. Yes. 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 Well, because life, life, life doesn't come in either our packages. It's always come with a variety of things, which change even in the moment. And indeed, one might argue that in a given moment, the appropriate thing might be to cut off the thumbs. Um, in another moment, it might not be the appropriate thing to do at all. So. It is contextual, how, how you confront things within a context rather than the absolute decision that you have to make because absolute decisions um, are often meaningless. It is like living by a biblical command, like uh, um, 10 commandments if I use it, thou shalt not steal. Well, that raises a lot of question in a context. If you are among the enslaved and someone else claims all the property yeah. and you are hungry, yeah. I really tell you in an absolute term, thou shalt not steal. So it's the context yeah. that very often rules the final decision. At least that's in my approach. Yes. Wow. Thank you. Like you just give me much more to think about. So I truly appreciate that because I do love to think beyond what is happening. Now, the last thing I know I said it was two, but I did forget it, it was one more. So the last question of tonight or this afternoon is what did you eat today? Now, on my social media, I, I love to cook food. I love food. Food is life for me. <laughs> I love my belly. So Feel free to be descriptive. <laughs> I haven't heard that term, love your belly, in a while, and it is so best Indian. Um, <laughs> what I have had is a meager, because I'm trying to watch my weight these days, and so far all I have had, and this is mid-afternoon when we are talking, is a kind of mid-morning brunch in which I had some toast, and some tea, and boiled eggs, my favorite banana and an orange. <laughs> amazing, amazing. You had your fruit as well. That is yeah. my um, my unorthodox way of just checking in with my guests because these are some uncertain and scary times. And though we are all, I have faith that we will make it through together. Not everyone has. And that is just my way of checking in on yeah. you, your mental health and making sure you're eating something. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I am. And uh, yeah, well. Yes, so 
Thank you so much, Cecil Foster, today for joining downtown. Don't waste no time with negativity. It was truly an honor and you gave so much of yourself today, which I do not take for granted. So thank you. And I will leave you with closing us out today. And is there whatever you would want to leave us with or you would want us to know or how you would like us to, to proceed for 2021? Take it whichever direction you may. I'm leaving it to you close us out today. Well, I want to sort of speak to your listeners and your viewers through you and to commend you for what you have done and to tell you that I found this a very personable conversation. And I think it augurs well and uh, as an indication of what people of your age and your generation can do and are reaching out. And I feel good about you and I feel good about DWNTWN and others and uh, that you're going to make a difference and that you're going to hand on to your kids and your grandkids a world that is much freer. And yes, take care of yourself, eat your fruits and your Wheaties and drink your milk and do all of those different things. But I'm not sure milk because West Indians tend to be lactose intolerant. So, <laughs> <Yes>. but, um, <laughs> so, but do all those things and love you one another and take care of one another. Wow. I am truly honored. I am my own scriptwriter. I am my own director. <laughs> I am. Listen, I was listening. I'm here with you, okay? I am. I am so excited for everyone to just be able to enjoy this conversation. That's what it's all about, the conversations you never get to hear. Thank you, everyone. Make sure you like, subscribe, make sure you buy all of Mr. Foster's books because not one is the same. They all share unique perspectives of our truths and we cannot let these things die in history. We must bring it forward, similar to how CBC, BET is doing and turning They Call Me George into a series. We need to just continue to carry these art forms forward and be progressive and be fire at times, right? Yes, yeah, <laughs> big fire. Yeah. Thank you so much, and everyone have a great, great day. This